So, I mean, you're showing me the, the audio is on. Welcome to class, folks. Hello. Um, sorry about the audio not working yesterday. Student in class brought that up to my attention. So, I'm just hoping that her computer was muted and that wasn't the reality of the situation. But, I have a feeling you all are more tech savvy than I am. So, it probably was my fault that um, Collaborate was giving me a fit yesterday morning. It took me 15 minutes to get it started. So, Hopefully, uh, for those of you who are listening from home, you're able to hear this today. Um, we'll move forward. Ooh. I just joined it and you can hear it. Wow, awesome. That's great. So, I have a student that says they're there now, so that's good. I want to go over first and foremost. I want to just do a little bit of review because I just feel like I'm getting a lot of questions from students who are just like, we've got a test on monday what do we do i also well before i do that i probably need to know how many people still do not have a book one two okay are you still able to access the online resources to text via was it did you print off everything you needed or okay how about you in the back? I saw somebody else with a hand up. Okay, you should probably be okay for this unit anyway. Anybody else? Okay, well that's good news. All right then, so I want to review some of the concepts because I feel like we, I've moved forward. I went and talked about nursing process. I've been all over the place with different things. So I want to review some of the things we talked about in the basic care. The first one was family. So just a couple of family notes I want you to jot down. Um, the ability of the family to meet health care, education, and basic needs is often affected by economic resources of the family. That's like the number one. I think I stressed that enough in lecture, but I want to make sure that you're hearing the things and taking notes on the things that are very important. So until you learn my voice and the intonation of it on certain concepts, it's going to take you a while to grasp that. So I want you to understand that when I'm talking about family and I'm just going through some of these things, um, the number one uh, thing that affects it with basic needs is their economic resources. Um, when we're talking about the development of a family, we're talking about what stage they're in in the life cycle. Um, knowing that with the family, function and structure are attributes to the family. And adapting to crisis is a sign of a healthy family. So moving on after I talk about family a little bit, and I know I've mentioned when we were in class about knowing the different types of family, what's a nuclear, all those different types of families, you're going to need to know that for the test because that's all on there. If we're talking about the nursing process and concepts I want to make sure that you understand as to why we use the nursing process. We use it to uphold professional standards of nursing and for critical thinking at a highest level for quality nursing care. That's the purpose of it. So using that nursing process along with applying the components of nursing critical thinking model, it will help make you the nurse the most appropriate clinical decisions. It will help you make the appropriate clinical decisions. So we use that process for clinical decision making. Care plans need to be individualized and recall the facts. Um, they don't utilize critical thinking skills to make clinical decisions, okay? They just are assessment tools and they recall facts. All right. For assessment, when we're talking about assessment, that was the first step of the nursing process. 
The purpose of assessment is to gather data. The purpose of it is to complete an emission assessment and gather data. So gathering information doesn't ensure a physiological need. Although assessment can begin a therapeutic relationship, and it does oftentimes, because you're the first person, the first point of contact for the patient when you're doing that emission assessment, it doesn't, it's not the primary purpose of an assessment, okay? So the purpose of an assessment is to gather data, okay? But it is, that is where you begin a relationship, but the purpose of it is to gather data. And um, the different types of data that you gather. I know I mentioned this in class. There's subjective and objective data. Subjective data comes from the subject. It includes the patient's feelings, perceptions, and reported symptoms. Only patients provide subjective, relevant data to their health condition. Data sometimes reflect the physiological changes which you can further explore through objective data collection. For example, like in clinical, they tell you their pain scale is on a 12 on a scale of 1 to 10, but their heart rate's not up and their blood pressure's not up. So the objective data suggests otherwise. Does that make sense? Yes. No, that's that's not right. Those are both those are both subjective, because that even that even using the pain scale is coming from the patient's mouth. It's subjective. Right. It, yeah. It's it's not qualitative versus quantitative, and that's kind of what you're getting it mixed up with. So make sure that you don't. Um, the question was for those online. Uh, the question was uh, whether the, you could use the pain scale as a objective tool and it's not it is subjective that is still subjective from the patient um, so not trying to trick you right there anything that comes from the subject is subjective does that make sense that, that i mean that'll help you when you're when you're taking the test you'll be able to look at it that way okay and objective that is the things you you assess on your own like your vital signs okay all right then, so describing the patient's behavior and the observations made and the measures that, measurements that you make of their health status are all examples of objective data, okay? So, moving on to defining characteristics, and you will see this work. Defining characteristics are a list of criteria that would be used to determine if a particular nursing diagnosis would fit with a patient. So a diagnostic statement is part of the nursing diagnosis written, written statement and planned interventions are utilized after the nursing diagnosis is determined and the related risk factors are and assessment data is collected. So the defining characteristics are the list of criteria that would be used to determine if a nursing diagnosis fits the patient, okay? And diagnosis, nursing diagnosis by definition does not include a medical diagnosis. That's definitely on the test. Keeping in mind that professional nurses are responsible for making clinical decisions to take immediate action when a patient condition worsens. This is the intervention part of the nursing process or the implementation. The patient care should be based on evidence-based practice, not on tradition. So if I gave you a scenario where a nurse suggested that we do something based on something that worked for her before. You really need to make clinical decisions based on evidence-based practice. So remember that, okay, when given options. Um, clear textbook solutions to patient problems are not always available 
and always individualize your care plan. When we're talking about goals, each goal or expected outcome needs to be a SMART goal, meaning it is specific, it's measurable, it's appropriate to the patient, it's realistic, and there is a time factor there too, T for time. So make sure if I asked you to write a goal that it would include all those things, or if you had to read some example goals that it included all of the things that made it a SMART goal. For the intervention phase of the nursing process, a nurse does not have the authority to give a medication without a physician's order, okay? I think I talked about this in clinical. Um, when I was going over in clinical lab, I was going over some of these things as far as evaluation of the nursing process. Um, and, or not evaluation, intervention of the nursing process. Um, when we talked about that, we talked about those being dependent interventions or collaborative or interdependent interventions. So a dependent intervention would be the administration of a medication because it depends on if you have an order whether you can give that medication or not. That's a dependent. An interdependent uh, intervention involves therapies that require combined knowledge, skill, and expertise from multiple healthcare professionals. I like to think of the interdependent interventions as the ones that are like your physical therapy, your occupational therapy, those types of things as examples for that. Lastly, an independent intervention does not require an order or collaboration with other professionals. Okay? So keep that in mind. That's, those are interventions that the nurse can do on their own without an order. Okay. And then the evaluation part of the nursing process, the purpose of evaluation is to determine the effectiveness of nursing care. Remember, this is what I like to call evaluation or reassessment. It's kind of where the circle starts again. And during evaluation, you do not simply determine whether nursing interventions were completed. It's not a matter of, yes, I gave oxygen to the patient, or yes, I fed the patient, or yes, I gave the patient a pain medication. It's the effectiveness of it. How did they do when they ate? How did they do with that medication? Did their pain decrease from what it was this pain scale when I walk in the room before I administer medication and here's what it is after? Does that make sense? So that's what that's how you evaluate. It's not a simple yes, I gave a Tylenol or no, I did not. Does that make sense? All right, because you're evaluating it. Um, all right, and then lastly, documentation. You want to, how do you correct an error on documentation? You would draw a line through that error and initial it. That's the only acceptable way when you're writing nurses' notes uh, to correct it. I know on all your old hospitals, it's going to be, you're gonna be doing computerized charting. And that never, once you put it into the computer, it never disappears. And on the computer, it may or may not, depending on the system you're in, show a line through it, okay? You can change and update things in the computer. So how it looks on the computer screen, I do not know. Depending on your facility, it may be different. But I have to teach you the way to write nurse's notes and document properly the right way with a written black ink pen because these computer systems go down and crash all the time. And we still have to be able to chart. So I have to make sure I'm teaching you that the right way. So although you won't use it very much, that question doesn't seem very uh, current. Um, you still have to know how to do it in the event that we don't have a computer. Also, it's very important to know that when you're documenting, I'm sure you were talking about this in the skills lab, that whiteout is to never be used on a chart. 
and placing your initials at the top of a page is incorrect and any eraser marks are never allowed on a legal document. So no matter what you do, you never can do it in pencil. Okay, so remember those things. I want to touch on HIPAA for just a second because that's one thing that we talked about um, in clinical labs, uh, the student handbook, different places in the last couple weeks. The patient has a right to make decisions about their plan of care. It's included in their Bill of Rights. I'm going to discuss that later on today. So keep that in mind. Also review those patient rights before the test as well. There'll be a few questions on that. It's important to note that immediate documentation of information as it's collected from a patient will increase the accuracy and decrease unnecessary duplication of charting. A good system will require frequent and random changes in your personal passwords and prevent unauthorized persons from tampering with records. It's essential that you don't store your computer password with anyone under any circumstance. Um, you destroy or shred anything, shred anything that's printed when the information is no longer needed. Taking nursing notes at home is a violation of the HIPAA Act. Um, only those who are involved in the patient's care need to know about that patient information. So patient information is not left out in the open for unauthorized persons to read. When you are a student in the clinical setting, confidentiality and compliance with HIPAA are part of professional practice. Uh, so reading the progress notes of an assigned patient's record and giving a change of shift report to an oncoming nurse about the patient are behaviors that follow HIPAA. Those are okay to do. That is, that, is, that is totally appropriate. So you need to just know the difference in examples. If I gave you examples on the test of what was appropriate versus inappropriate. Um, so you're allowed to read a chart and you're allowed to report off a change of shift report. So to protect patient confidentiality, ensure that written materials used in your student clinical practice don't include patient identifiers ever. So make sure you're not carrying anything home. Um, nothing with a room number, date of birth, or demographic information. Remember I told you even on your care plan, just use the last two numbers of their room number. That way it keeps it vague. Never print material from an electronic health record for personal use. So don't print lab data. Even if the nurses offer to do it for you and make your life easier, it'll get you in trouble. You can't do it. And when you are um, outside of the hospital, you do not discuss patient's examination, observation, conversation, diagnosis, or treatment with other patients or staff not involved in the patient's care. Another note I want to add is to make sure that you remember that your identification is up above your waist when you're in the hospital at all times, okay? Above, above the waist, where up above the waist the patients can see it. All right, those were just a few things I jotted down that I want to make sure that you all remembered for the exam. Other things to take note of for the exam, you will, it'll be, the test will be 50% skills lab content and 50% what we talked about in class. So that's why I told you all, like the readings and things like that, as important as they are, is to probably build a fundamental foundation for what's going on in the program and moving forward. The testing part, you need to understand, is based 50% on skills lab. So hopefully you took good notes while you were there, or you will today and tomorrow. Uh, or yesterday and today, and before you go back. Um, a lot of the things that we talked about were positioning of patients. These are just reminders so that you'll kind of just go down and study a few of these things. Uh, proper body mechanics. Um, some things we went over in class were Maslow's hierarchy, um, 
we went over the different types of um, transmission-based uh, precautions, universal precautions in skills lab. Um, I've talked about subjective and objective data this morning. Um, how to chart, what would be the most appropriate thing to, uh, to write out a chart um, if you're writing a nurse's note. Um, the way to perform certain types of care, very important to note. Um, I just talked about all that with medical records and uh, HIPAA. Um, how to provide comfort. Um, appropriate interventions for patients with head stockings. We went over that in clinical this week. So you can see basically everything comes down to about 50% skills lab, 50% class. Now I will let you know there's going to be some order called select all that apply questions on the exam as well. So you will have four of those. They ask you to do a higher percentage. They actually want your test to be 25% select all that apply which students hate those questions, they're, they're challenging. The whole purpose of a select all the plot question is just to select what is appropriate in that clinical scenario. Um, so a good way to practice select all the plot question, the um, Evolve um, access that you have for your textbook, you can go under your textbook, go under your fundamentals book, and there will be places to do quizzes for every single chapter of your text that you have. And so if you went, I would go under the basic care ones, honestly, if I were you, you know, all the history stuff about Florence Nightingale and all that, you're not going to see test questions about that, okay? I'm just going to tell you right now, that's, I have to give that to you so that you, and I want you to have that content, but it's just not going to be on NCLEX, so I really want to, I want to center your focus and direct your focus to the other things. So go to those types of chapters, and then there's a place on there, I think you could click that you, if you want to select practice just select all the apply questions and it'll give you just select all the apply questions. So once you learn how to use that, that's a very effective tool for help preparing you for exams, okay? So um, some of the things you need to remember for, you know, like if I was to give you an example question, if I was asking you to tell me what were, what all were components of the diagnosis process of the nursing process or the diagnosis phase or the assessment process. So you would just pick out everything that was appropriate. Does that make sense? So you would have to pick like, you know, the things that were appropriate. Now remember when you're taking the select all with apply question, it can be all, but it's always more than one. Okay? And it can be all. All right. All right. So you want to know the different types of nursing diagnoses. You want to know all the different types. So we know the different types of nursing diagnoses are your actual, your risk for, and then your health promotion, right? When we're, that, when we're getting ready for the nursing process. So there, right there are your different types of nursing diagnosis. If I ask you to give me different types of, like what, if you fall into the assessment category, give me the proper examples. Whatever example here is listed on this multiple choice, give me an example of what would be appropriate for an assessment. Okay, or give me, a, if I gave you a diagnosis question on that, and pick which, which of these are all appropriate nursing diagnoses. Okay, so just be able to go through that and identify what all is appropriate. Select all that apply. Okay. All right. So I want, I'm glad I did that. That made me feel better. I wanted to kind of give a little synopsis of what was going to be, what the test was going to look like. Now you've got a better picture. The whole rest of the test is multiple choice. Okay, there's 40 total questions, and four questions are select all that apply. Okay? All right.
And I try to stick to that method most of the semester. But you're going to have to do different things on the multiple choice, like ordering and different things like that. So be prepared for that throughout the semester. Because nursing tests are just a little different than what you're used to. So I want you to be prepared for it. The best way to do that is use those evolved resources and take example questions. Okay. Now I want to move on to um, the um, Patient's Bill of Rights. So let me go to that. Because that's what we want to talk about today. Let me share that. talk so much about confidentiality and HIPAA, I feel like I've kind of just beat that to death. So I'm not going to spend any extra time on that. I'm going to just go over the patient bill of rights. Um, keeping in mind uh, with patient bill of rights, these rights can be exercised on the patient's behalf by a designated surrogate or proxy decision maker if the patient lacks decision making capacity, is legally incompetent, or is a minor. Okay. So, number one, the patient has a right to considerate and respectful care. And I know in your mind you're probably thinking, well, when would I treat somebody inappropriately? Because I didn't go into this profession to mistreat people, and I know you didn't either, right? So, what's some circumstances where that may come up? Give me an example. The nursing home. The nursing home. Yeah. What, just getting frustrated with the patients? Um, or what do you mean by just, uh, I mean, did you just see an example of that in a nursing home of somebody not getting treated respectfully? Yeah, I okay. mean, I've worked in a nursing home and I've just, I've seen it out of co-workers. You've seen it out of co-workers, yeah. So this is something that you've witnessed and you've seen firsthand. Yeah. I think all nurses have, it's sad, isn't it? Yeah. Depending on what kind of day the um, nurse is having. How about something else? Give me another example. Uh, can anybody think of anything else where, go ahead. Uh, like residents or patients with dementia, even though they don't know what's going on, still should treat them as if they did. Yeah. Okay. I can see that. I can see that being an example. Um, did you all realize that you were going to have to take care of, uh, you know, in the hospital, you know, prisons will have to bring people to the hospital at times, right? Um, how, how do you feel about taking care of somebody who might have done such a heinous crime or done something bad? Would you treat them the same as you would any other patient? That's right. It's not our place to judge what they do. But inside your value, see, what if I was to tell you, what if you were given a, a patient who was a, a known pedophile, multiple um, multiple um, counts and um, convictions on something like that? It kind of makes things just a little bit harder, right? It just, even when you, even when you know better, you know to do better. Um, what about... Um, Somebody, you, you get, uh, let's say you got a drug dealer who uh, did, was involved in a drive-by shooting or something like that that killed a kid or hit a kid on a bike and killed him. Because you get the full scenario at the hospital. You get the whole background story. So what I'm trying to get at is there are, there are situations where that becomes very difficult to do. Um, 
because um, of whatever reason. But considerate care and respectful care is necessary if you're part of the nurse. That's, that is, um, that's their right. So I don't know if I really thought about that when I was very young and went to nursing school, like what all I would see when I graduated and I was out in practice. And some days are harder than others. And some patients are a little bit more hard to tolerate than others, but we have to do that uh, respectfully. Okay. The next thing on the patient's bill of rights. The patient has the right and is encouraged to obtain from physicians and other direct caregivers relevant, current, and understandable information concerning their diagnosis, treatment, and prognosis. Okay. So, there is um, never a time if they do not understand what is going on um, with their care, they always have that right. So if they want to talk to the physician a hundred times and it's been explained a hundred times, they have that right. So you have to bring that to the physician's attention in the event that that um, becomes an issue and they don't understand and you need to go over and review understandable information concerning their diagnosis. If one approach isn't working, use something else, okay, to just make sure that that happens. Now, Except an emergency when a patient would lack that decision-making capability and the need for treatment is urgent, the patient is entitled to the opportunity to discuss and request information related to their specific procedures and or treatment. The risks involved in the possible length of recuperation and the medically reasonable alternatives and their accompanying risks and benefits. So, except in the case of when it was an emergency for a patient, we would always sit down and discuss that. But in the event that it is an emergency and we have to rush things along, we would move forward with that because that's in the best interest of the patient's life. Patients also have the right to know the identity of physicians, nurses, and others involved in their care, as well as when those involved are students, residents, or other trainees. This is very important that you disclose who you are. A few years back, we started making sure that all badges um, in the hospital directly uh, showed who was from what department for whatever reason. We've even taken it to different levels as far as color coding and different things like that at the hospital now. Um, however, you know, it, it does get confusing when patients um, don't know who someone is in the room. It, uh, so they have the right to know who's a physician and a nurse and who's a student. So always disclose yourself as a nursing student. I'm here from Rosarina. My teacher's here. She's right down the hall. Like that's that's always what you should say. See, that instantly covers you know any concerns they may have had about having a student for the day. Um, you know, that patients have a right, if they don't want to deal with residents, if they don't want to deal with nursing students, they can, they can refuse to have you in the room. And if they do, we just, we leave graciously and don't cause any problem whatsoever. Um, I can remember uh, whenever I had my son in the hospital, I asked if there not be a lot of residents in the room because I, I figured, you know, I mean, I worked at the hospital, everybody knew who I was. Um, I had worked all around in different areas of the hospital, including ER, ICU, neonatal intensive care. I floated, and so I knew everybody from every department, but I didn't want, uh, and I knew everybody was there just to just check on me and the baby, and they were just being sweet out of friendship, but I knew I couldn't get any rest uh, when I was in there. And, and I, so we, we had it placed on a chart, you know, for no residents or anything like that, because I didn't, I wanted to avoid as many interruptions as possible, um, just trying to get started with him. And, 
you know, learn to breastfeed and do all those things, and I just didn't want, you know, a lot of, you know, you, you lose a lot of dignity when you go in to have a baby at the hospital. So there was a lot of that that I just wanted to be keep private. So it wasn't anything personal against them. It was really more about my recovery. So never take it personal. Um, we will have patients that refuse to have students, and that's okay. It's really not a problem. I've never, ever had a problem with that. Uh, I always just thank the patient for their time and their consideration on the option to have a student, and I'll walk out the door and find another patient for you. It's really no big deal. Um, so always keep that in mind, they have that right. Now, um, they need to know who they are, but that doesn't mean that, especially in the case of residents, that because residents are there for in the doctor's place a lot of times, so a lot of times they can't refuse a resident, especially if they're in a teaching hospital. So remember that, they just need to know who all is involved in their care and like what level they're at. So um, another thing that the patient has the right to know is the immediate and long-term financial implications of their treatment choices insofar as they are known. So um, we do have people at the hospitals now that come out and talk to the patients and give them an idea of what's going on as far as their, um, as their care um, and like what tests and how their insurance is gonna pay for it and give them breakdowns and payment plans and different things like that. They actually hire people to do this now. Um, so, and it's a big department because <laughs> reimbursement's a really important thing. So they spend a lot of time and money on this. So, uh, but patients do have the right to know that. A patient has the right to make decisions about their plan of care prior to and during the course of treatment and refuse recommended treatment or plan of care to the extent permitted by law and hospital policy and to be informed of the medical consequences of that action. In case of such refusal, the patient is entitled to other appropriate care and services that the hospital provides or transfer to another hospital. So it's not an all or nothing kind of thing. We can't, you can't throw that out there and be like, well, if you don't have this heart surgery here, we're just gonna send you home and not take care of you anymore. That doesn't happen, that, that doesn't exist. So make sure that you understand there's no medical consequence for that um, or no um, inappropriate consequence for that. Um, the hospital should notify patients of any policy that might affect uh, their the patient's choice within an institution. So example, like they say they don't want the cancer doctor that you have on staff. Well, that's, say that's the only cancer doctor that you have. But you've got to get, let them know that you hear your options. You can go to another hospital. You can uh, you be transferred out. Uh, just go within your means of what's in your hospital. If, if you can offer them another uh, physician there in your hospital, that's wonderful too. Uh, but you're gonna have situations like that where a patient would refuse treatment. I gave you the example of my grandpa and how that was just what was better for him. There's a lot of documentation on the end when someone does refuse, um, so you gotta make sure that you documented that you educated, educated, educated about all options. However, they still the ultimate decision makers, the patient. Um, patient has a right to an advanced directive number four. Um, they have an option of a living will, a health care proxy, or durable power of attorney for their health care concerning their treatment, or designating a surrogate decision maker with the expectation that the hospital will honor the intent of that directive and to the extent permitted by law and hospital policy. And we do tend to follow that with whatever. Um, there's been so many uh, policy changes even as far as like um, what's confidential information and what is not, uh, what can be given. Hospitals go so far as to now assign a number, uh, there's like four digit code just to get patient information. Um, 
even if you are a family member, you can't just call, you have to have the code and different things like that. So um, in cases like that where there's somebody who is the health, the power of attorney for the patient, um, that you know, they have the option to hand out that code to get so that you can give information out to others. Um, but if they if they want a living will written or advance directives written while they're at the hospital, we have social workers on staff that do that while they're there as well. So that can be taken care of. Um, healthcare institutions must advise patients of their rights under state law and hospital policy to make informed medical choices. Um, ask if the patient has an advanced directive when they're admitted and include that information in their records. If you don't see it right there on the chart, it's fine to ask your patient when you assess them. That's okay, it's appropriate. The patient has the right to time, uh, timely information about hospital policy that may limit its ability to implement fully a legally valid advanced directive. Patient also has the right to every consideration of privacy. So case discussion, consultation, examination, and treatment should be um, conducted so as to protect each patient's privacy. One thing, um, I don't see so much problem with case discussion. I see a lot of that go on behind closed doors. Because they'll have unit meetings where they have social workers involved, physical therapy, the charge nurse, someone to represent the physician, uh, and sometimes someone to represent the family to have a case discussion about a patient. They typically do that in a private room with doors closed. Um, but sometimes I notice where we drop the ball on the right to privacy is um, with consultation, examination, and treatment to protect their privacy. And what I mean by that is, through infection control measures, we've taken down a lot of like the curtains in the rooms just for infection control measures. And that used to be a privacy measure too. So it was kind of there for dual purpose, you see what I'm saying? Um, so for privacy, we, we've, gotten, we, we've gotten rid of that and we've lost that privacy element. Now, when was that a big deal? It was a big deal when patients were two to a room. So if they had a roommate, that made things very complicated. I think most hospitals now have all gone to private rooms. And you won't see much of, um, you know, patients sharing a room anymore. Um, and so that's helped a whole lot when you're having case discussions with the patient or they're meeting with uh, the physician to do a consultation of some sort or you're going to do or initiate a treatment or care. Um, if the curtains are available, use them, okay? I think we forget that. Sometimes as nurses, we go in just as us as nurses and we'll shut the door. But when that door just automatically gets opened by somebody, you know, it could be anybody from food service to housekeeping to whatever opens the door. If that curtain's not there, what ends up happening is, you know, you're doing a bath and you're doing care for that patient and then their whole, they lose all their uh, dignity and they lose all their privacy at that point in time. So um, if it's there, use it. If it's not there, you know, but we'll have signs and things to hang on the door to let know baths in progress or treatment in progress to kind of let somebody know outside the room not to just come in uh, because we're trying to uh, conduct their privacy. Um, the patient has a right to expect that all communications and records pertaining to their care will be treated as confidential by the hospital, except in cases such as suspected abuse, because that's, it's a reportable event, you have to report that, 
and public health standards when reporting is permitted or required by law. And we all know about public health standards right now because we're all going through it with COVID, right? So in the event that, that's gonna be reported as well. Um, the patient has the right to expect the hospital will emphasize the confidentiality of this information when it releases it to any other parties entitled uh, to review information in these records. So uh, they won't send stuff, like somebody has to come pick up and sign for a medical record, stuff like that's not just transferred. Anything that's discussed at the hospital, if you've ever gotten any um, email comp or email um, communication from hospitals, you'll notice there's a privacy statement there at the bottom that if this was sent indirectly, it's to be destroyed and all those kinds of things. So do everything that we can. It's a digital world out there. I can't say it's perfect, uh, but we do every single thing that we can. If you've ever tried to get your medical record from the hospital, you know what I'm talking about. There's multiple pieces of uh, paper that you have to sign to get those uh, documents. So you you know, understand that it's it's difficult at times. Patients oftentimes become more frustrated with it because they can't just get it on hand. They think, well, I'll be able to go to the nurse's station, grab it, hand it back to them. And we can't do that. So that's where you're going. There's where your problem's going to be. But you just remind them that this is all in place to just give them, you know, to protect their privacy. And usually that, that helps because they, they get frustrated at times with different things. We, we, we follow so many laws and we do so many things it just gets annoying to patients and you'll see if you've worked there for a long time. If you've ever been a patient, you probably already know what I'm talking about, right? You already know it from the patient perspective. All right. The patient has the right to review the records pertaining to their, their medical care and to have that information explained or interpreted as necessary, except when restricted by law. So if they ask to see something, that, that they have that right to do so. So you need to understand that. Uh, no matter what anybody else tries to tell you, they have the right. Um, the patient has the right to expect that within its capacity and policies, a hospital will make reasonable response to the request of a patient for appropriate and medically indicated care and services. The hospital must provide evaluation, service, and or referral as indicated by the urgency of the case. So in the case of something like a transfer, they have that right, and we have to do that within a reasonable time frame. And so you'll notice now even the hospitals have hired um, a lot of um, people like a transfer nurse or a transfer coordinator and different things like that to make sure that in situations like that that they're handled um, appropriately and at the uh, indicated time frame. So when um, medically um, appropriate and legally permissible or when a patient has so requested, a patient may be transferred to another facility. The institution to which the patient is to be transferred must first have accepted the patient for transfer. So that's one thing that's very important to make sure you communicate to the patient because they have to accept them. And oftentimes that's hard to do, especially if it's a private hospital, they won't accept everybody so it doesn't just happen in a blink of an eye or snap of a finger because they want it to. So they need to understand that. The patient must also have the benefit of complete information and explanation concerning the need for, the risks of, the benefits of, and the alternatives to such a transfer. So in other words, if we put you on this ambulance and transfer you across town because you want to be at St. Mary's and you want your regular heart doctor, you need to understand if you would come down the way. <laughs> It may not have been the smartest decision ever, but we're going to make you sign multiple papers that <laughs> keep you.
keep us out of legal trouble. Does that make sense? I mean, just to put it bluntly, that's basically what it comes down to. So they have the benefit of that, but they also need to know the risks involved. Um, and I say this, uh, you know, with as, uh, as sweet as I can possibly say it, because patients, you know, they get in their head that, you know, the ambulance driver brought them here and they have a bad night in the ER and they didn't get transferred to a room in appropriate enough amount of time. They start to get frustrated, so they just want out of your hospital. And maybe, maybe the, we've been taking excellent care of them even though we had to give them a hall bed and we've got them on a monitor and we're doing all the right things and that trip across town could kill them. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I have been in the ambulance and transfer a patient when I thought they weren't going to make it. So I can honestly tell you, you know, when somebody's heart rate's dropping into the 30s and different things like that, that you, you have got to be careful. And I mean, they'll still will ask you to do that at times. So um, it's important to note and the risk and benefit be explained. And sometimes they're not in a shape where they fully understand that. You know what I mean? And family still wants them to transfer. So just remember that. Okay. But we do the best we can to make a reasonable response to that request. Patient has the right to ask and be informed of the existence of a business relationship among hospitals, educational institutions, and other healthcare providers or payers that may influence the patient's treatment and care. So we all know that everything in Huntington turned to Mountain Health recently, right? Everything, Cowboy, um, I think Pleasant Valley's in on it too, aren't they? Is Pleasant Valley part of Mountain Health? If they're not, I feel like they were maybe going to be. Um, St. Mary's, Cowboy, all together. Uh, they're buying up hospitals left and right. So there is a business relationship that exists between those. It's important that, uh, you know, they have a right to be informed of that. And they usually are. There's so much, like, literature at the bedside that lets, student, or lets patients know that. Um, but, you know, obviously, if we have cancer hospitals, and we wanted to use our cancer hospital in our system. So that, you know, your first option to pick that is going to be to transfer a patient to one of, those, one of your other systems that can meet their needs. Um, is that the best decision? I don't know. Maybe they still want Cleveland Clinic, or maybe they still want to go to Duke, or maybe they want to go to UK or Ohio State. So we don't have a business relationship with those institutions. And so that can be, you know, an area where they need to have some information. Um, so they need to be informed that we have a business relationship here and we offer all these services here. It's still up to you where you want to go. Patient has a right to consent or decline to participate in proposed research studies or human experimentation affecting care and treatment or requiring direct patient involvement. And to have those studies fully explained prior to consent. Obviously, have any of y'all ever been part of a research study? I did it once. I got paid $300, so I was so excited. I was at the end of nursing school, and I was like, yes, I can never use this money. I still have no idea what in the world they injected into me. Um, but I just was hoping that I was getting the placebo part of that. And took a chance and rolled the dice. I don't recommend it. I don't know. It could explain a lot of things that's going on. I mean, my hair used to have curl to it. Now it doesn't. It could be from that shot I took. I wonder about every single thing ever since that time that I did that. What the heck study was I in? I don't even really know. It was just some type, probably some type of flu vaccine or something. I did it over at Marshall. But, uh, you know, also you had to weigh the risk and the benefit. And guess what? Bills need to be paid. Like $300 helped the girl out. Um, 
but you have a right to consent. You have to consent when you're part of a research study. So anytime that you have a patient that's going into something that's a proposed research, all that information has to be explained. There has to be consent signed. Um, patient who declines to participate in a research study or experimentation is entitled to the most effective care that the hospital can otherwise provide. So if they provide, if they choose not to do that, we still provide appropriate care and no judgment. I mean, obviously. Um, I think that goes without saying, that's just compassionate care, but just keeping in mind that if you are ever involved with anything from the nursing side, like so you're going to be the one who gives the injection to somebody who's part of a research day, make sure all the consents are signed, okay, just to cover your own rear end, because you definitely don't want to do anything that would cause you a problem. All right, the patient has the right to reasonable continuity of care when appropriate and to be informed by physicians and other caregivers of available and realistic patient care options when hospital care is no longer available. Okay, so this was when I talked about like the transition. Where do they go when they leave? And con reasonable continuity of care is like, you know, where, where do they go to after that? And you know, the nursing home's not always the right appropriate thing. Um, hospice is not always the right appropriate thing, but also home is not always the appropriate thing. So reasonable continuity of care when appropriate. Um, so we have to use realistic patient care options, and that's all based on the assessment, the data that you've gathered, um, the overall condition of the patient when they're discharged, different things like that. Um, so we have people that come in and help with all this because it, a discharge is not just like you know a discharge anymore; it's a transition, uh, and so sometimes people require rehab services rather than. Um, nursing home services, some require hospice services, social workers will all come in and help with all that kind of stuff um, when it's no longer appropriate for them to be in the hospital. A lot of times patients will be surprised um, of what we discharge from the hospital. Uh, even patients on ventilators are discharged to rehabilitation type facilities uh, now. So if you don't have any background medically or know anything about that, uh, you know, that might be kind of shocking to you for all that equipment to be able to think, how in the world would they discharge somebody like this? They're in our ICU. And yes, they are. And they're receiving that kind of care because you can't be discharged to the floor with a ventilator. But sometimes people, if it's going to be a permanent type thing, they're going to be discharged to a rehab facility that takes ventilators. And those, that's, you know, Carmen or something like that's the closest thing. I've seen people have to go all the way to Atlanta, Georgia, and different places for, for that type of care. Um, and we try to keep that realistic for the patient because that's the reality of the situations they're in and as sad as that is, it, it destroys families, it destroys their a lot of livelihood for the partner who would have to travel that far to go to that type of facility because it doesn't exist around here. Um, that continuity of care, um, they'll be begging you, please can they just stay here? Like it's closer to my home and it's closer to work and it just doesn't fall into that category where we can keep them sometimes so I just want you all to be prepared for the emotional um, you know element that you're going to see with some of these situations um, it happens all right the patient also has the right to be informed of um, hospital policies and practices that relate to their care treatment and responsibilities the patient has a right to be informed of available resources for resolving disputes, grievances, and conflicts, such as ethics committees, um, patient representatives, or other mechanisms available in the institution. 
The patient has the right to be informed of the hospital's charges for services and available um, payment methods. Now, one thing that you probably haven't thought very much of um, is um, how um, like an ethics committee would work or a situation that might arise and something that you would, this would be applicable. Um, you know, we've all heard the stories, you know, where um, you know, the family's in dispute as to whether to cut off life support or not, right? And a situation of where you've got, you know, somebody who is young and maybe they've been on that life support for months and months and um, the husband and wife have talked about, you know, they weren't, didn't want those types of things done in the event that they wouldn't make it, uh, but it wasn't anything written in um, stone or there was no legal document and then you kind of got, you know, her, let's just say there's a woman in that situation on a ventilator and the husband is wanting to let her go and you got her side of the family like mother and father who don't want that to happen, right? I mean, I'm giving you a soap opera scenario here, but the reality is this happens, right? I mean, we've, we've had instances where an ethics committee has had to be called in. Does the ethics committee ultimately make that decision? No, they do not. They're just kind of there as mediators to kind of help in that process. Um, judges. You know, we let that fall on the legal because from our point of view, we, we do not make those types of decisions. Uh, but we can try to help in any way to assist that. Um, they have to be informed all along the way of obviously um, the hospital policies and practices that relate to that type of care. Like, I mean, somebody in that state wouldn't be in the hospital setting ICU bed forever. Um, so we'll have that ethics committee come in and you know, we'll try to help resolve that dispute, any kind of problems or grievances they have with one another or conflicts. Um, we'll have representatives that sit on both sides and talk about both sides of the case. Um, and if you're ever asked to be on an ethics committee or be part of that uh, in the ICU, uh, it can be very, you know, hard, uh, mentally or emotionally exhausting. Um, but it, it's a good one to be on it in the event that you would need to discuss something ethical um, with patients' families. Um, that was just an example of um, like life support. Um, there are definitely others um, to take into consideration instances of different types of um, situations where a patient might have to uh, be seen for an ethics committee consult. Um, some other examples of uh, different things, you're going to see all the patient's rights always listed there at the bedside for the patient. Um, it just talks about, you know, what some patient responsibilities might be while they're in the hospital. They have rights, but they also have some responsibilities. Um, so one of the things is that they have the responsibility to provide the best of their knowledge, accurate and complete information that can that um, has to do with their health status um, or relating to their health status. Uh, they're responsible for their actions if a treatment's refused or terminated, and the patient um, is responsible for following rules and regulations affecting their care and conduct. Um, 
So a couple of the big things that they're responsibility, you know, they're not supposed to smoke in the rooms. <laughs> I'll just throw one out there that's like, you know, the most common. Um, you'll have patients that'll break that rule. And so we ask them that they follow all the rules of the hospital. And so if there's signs that say no smoking, they shouldn't smoke. You're gonna find patients smoking in the bathroom. They're stand on the commode and try to blow smoke up into the vent so that it just doesn't, you can't smell it. They'll just do anything. Uh, they'll leave the unit with um, IVs in their arms and go pushing their IV post down um, Calgary Boulevard, uh, right there in front of Judy Ritzy's and everything in Huntington. And um, you, they know that's against the rules all in an effort to go out and smoke. You know, the rule is you don't go outside the hospital with an IV catheter because I mean, let's just face it, that's basically on Heroin Alley. So, I mean, we've just gave them a port to go get high. So, you know, one of the things that I want to you know, keep in mind is they have rules and responsibilities too. So we, we try to do this. Does this mean that they all follow the rules because I said it was the rule? <laughs> no, <laughs> nobody follows the rules. But what I'm saying is it kind of gives me um, you know, the option to call security there if they don't. Does that make sense to go pick them up? Because that's still my IV and they're all. <laughs> I, I don't know how else to say it. I just don't want you all to think that, you know, that they can get by. That's, that's against the rules. Patients will disappear. They'll walk off the unit. And so we have to, you know, call uh, overhead a tow walker and give a description and different things like that if they were to do so. So, um, if those rules aren't being followed, we're going to sit down and discuss that with them. Management will sit down and discuss that with them. Security will sit down and discuss that with them. Um, so there, there are avenues to follow. Now, I'm a, I'm a bit curious on the very first time somebody makes a mistake, no, because patients are in the hospital and they're confused and they don't know the rules. So we try to do as much as review as we can and let them know what's appropriate and inappropriate. Most of them, I think, already do know before they get there, but some of them, I don't know that they do. So um, another thing that we ask as far as rules uh, in the hospital is that, you know, from the patient at least, is to control the noise and the number of visitors that they bring into the hospital. This has been strictly enforced with COVID. I think all y'all know all the hospitals shut down all visitation at one point in time. Um, and now they're starting to let people come back in. It's like limited one person a day. Um, I've been on both sides of this. I can see it from the nurse's perspective and I can see it from the patient's perspective. Uh, from a patient perspective, my dad was put in the hospital twice this summer during COVID, and it was horrible because I couldn't go visit him. I mean, I couldn't, he, I couldn't go in and check on him or see him or, or do anything that needed to be done. Uh, it was limited to just his wife that was able to go and stay with him, and even that was a very limited amount of hours, and she had to wear a mask and different things like that, and that was hard because he was in there for 10 days straight. I mean, I know people in more situations than me, but like, you know, for the first time in your life, you just feel like you're a nurse, you can't go in and see and understand what's going on, you have to take their word for it. Um, so looking at it from that perspective, I mean, I, I wish there was more visiting hours and there was able to have more visitors. However, I do understand because I am a nurse that I couldn't. I can't imagine a situation where it's a pediatric patient. Uh, I, kept, I mean, I kept telling my son Jake over and over and over, I'm like, whatever you do, do not catch this virus um, because if you were to go to the hospital, they may not let me come and visit you. Like, especially in the beginning stages, in the first few weeks of all that. Do you all remember how scary that was? Like, could you imagine just handing your kid off in an ER to, and, and be gone from God only knows how many days? I mean, not knowing if they would make it because this was all so scary at first. Um, so that's terrifying to, you know, mother. Then it was said, okay, no mother can go or father can go. One of the 
maybe parents. So you can see that patients coming into the hospital these days have those fears. They've watched the news, they've seen those types of things. Um, so moving on from visitation, because I mean, I don't want to be that all day, but uh, the other thing is respectful of the property of other persons uh, in the hospital. So we do have thieves in the hospital. These, are, these can be patients, they will take things. I mean, so we don't leave extra things laying in the room to tempt anybody to steal. I mean, it was mornings in the ER when I was stocking rooms and I, <laughs> I would literally count, you know, there's just a couple of Neosporins in the drawer, that's fine. I mean, I don't want to put 10 or 20 in there because patients will pilfer through the drawers and just start taking stuff. Heck fire, they take TVs out of the waiting room. Who am I kidding? I mean, I've seen them carry flat screen TVs out of the hospital on security cameras. There's nothing they won't steal. Um, but we do tell them as a rule uh, to respect the property of the hospital and property of other people that they're in the hospital with. But never, ever, ever, you know, you always want to advise your patients to hide their uh, valuables um, and send them home with family member because you wouldn't want that on property uh, because you don't want to tempt a thief. That's just the way it is. Um, and uh, I've talked about smoking and how that's a rule they're not allowed to smoke and then um, assuring the hospital that if they do have an advanced directive that they um, will make that known to us. That's another rule. So, so from their standpoint, they have some rules to follow as well. Um, let's see, making sure I didn't miss anything. Do y'all have any questions about patient rights? Yeah. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you can let us see. 